singing, great testimonies. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing all of that and singing with such, such energy, such vitality there. Boy, praise the Lord. Take your Bibles. Please open up in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, as we look at this panoramic view of the Bible. Normally, we're in a book of the Bible, and we're studying verse by verse. We're understanding the context and the, the particular person or recipient to the letter, and then all the different applications, and, and it's exciting. But it is good at times to pull back and just get a whole overview of, of what God is doing and what Satan has done and how we're involved. And I think we just get a whole different perspective. So I pray that this perspective will just be an encouragement to you, and it'll maybe put all of today's trials and tribulations in perspective. And so let's pray, and then we're just going to ask God to continue to teach us and to just reveal to us um, what is going to happen in the future. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Thank you that the Holy Spirit uh, breathed it out through holy men of old. They were moved by the Holy Spirit to write this down. This is truth. It is absolute truth. It is our authority. We understand and we believe, and we, we believe it and hold on to it with a tight grip. Thank you, Father, that you've revealed to us your creative genius in putting all of creation together in six literal days. We understand that there was a rebellion with Satan that drew away a third of the angels, and he also captured the heart and mind of mankind. And Father, we are in the middle of spiritual warfare. I pray for those who are raising families. As moms and dads are raising their families in a godly way, nurturing them and teaching them, they are under severe attack. That is in the heat of the battle. That is spiritual warfare right there in this greatest. Father, there is warfare against the church, there's warfare every time we share the gospel with somebody. But we thank you that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And because we are in Christ, we are assured victory. It comes through his death for our sins and his resurrection. Thank you so much for our Redeemer. We pray tonight even our eyes would be opened with greater understanding of the history of the Bible and where we are in it and ultimately where everything is driving towards so thank you again for giving us this great perspective of the ages. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. So this morning we, we did look at uh, creation, the days of creation, six literal days, 24-hour days. We saw that Satan rebelled, and he was uh, called Lucifer in the Bible, the, the shining one, and there was pride in his heart. He was found with iniquity. And we remember in Ezekiel chapter 28, by the abundance of his trading, maybe he was trading favors for people uh, because his goal was not just to worship God or to bring all glory to God in heaven, but it was to be God. He wanted to usurp God's authority. He wanted to kill God and remove him from the throne and set up his own kingdom. So he needed subjects to do that. And as he went after the angelic realm, he was able to get one third of the angels Remember, there are three named angels in the Bible, Lucifer, Michael, and Gabriel. Possibly, Lucifer got his one-third by promising them, if you follow me in a, re- in a rebellion against God, then when I become king, when I become God, and he is off the throne, I will give you this or that or whatever promises he made. But by the abundance of his trading, great iniquity was found in this, in this creature of God. But he didn't just want that some of the angelic realm on his side, he wanted to capture the hearts and minds of mankind. Of course, there were only Adam and Eve on the earth at the time. And God had told Adam in the garden, tend and keep it. Tend, cause the garden to flourish, and then keep it. In the Hebrew, guard it. There was an enemy lurking, 
Guard your home. Guard, your, guard the garden. And, and I'll tell you, dads, moms and dads, guard your homes from the evil influence of this world. Boy, it does not take much for this world to creep into our homes and into our lives. It will capture the hearts and minds of your children, and they will soon be in full rebellion. So we just have to be sure that we're always thinking about tending our homes and keeping them, guarding them from the evil one. Of course, we know that Eve took of the fruit and gave it to Adam, who was with her. And when he sinned, remember all the consequences this morning that came out of that? Spiritual death, he was separated from his creator, the relationship now broken. He was spiritually separated. He died spiritually. And he became no longer a, a, a citizen of the kingdom of God, but he was transferred into the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. He became a child of wrath, and on and on. We saw all of that. Then he began to die physically, disease, death, decay, now possibly death by accident and different hazards in the world and all sorts of things. And we know that as soon as Adam sinned, that God in the garden brought the devil, Adam, and Eve together, and he made a promise. And the promise was, the seed of the woman, a seed of the woman will come, and this seed will crush your head, he said to the devil. And you, devil, will bruise his heel. And we understand how that now that we're on this side of the cross, we understand that when Jesus died on the cross, Satan was dealing a blow to the Lord, but actually the, the death of Jesus was our life. And so Satan, in thinking he had finally killed the Redeemer, actually opened the floodgates to our salvation and the salvation of the world. And also, nothing can hold Christ from death because he, was, he had no sin. So he was able to rise from the dead and have complete victory. Well, we understand that at that point, the devil is now thinking, the devil is thinking, I've got to stop the seed of the woman from coming. Because if the seed of the woman comes, I'm destroyed. God said, the seed of the woman will crush your head. So now Satan's goal in the Old Testament is to keep that Messiah from coming, and he will do all he can. He's going to do a couple of different methods. Of course, Satan is full of schemes and methods to cause uh, people to be blinded and to be disobedient. But he, he needed to stop the line of Jesus from coming. He, he needed to do something. He needed to find the line of Christ. He needed to stop that baby boy from being born. But also... For those who were believers, who had trust and faith in the Lord, he needed to stop their witness. He needed to infiltrate, infiltrate them with false teaching that would lead to evil behavior so God's truth and witness could not be propagated. He needed to stop the truth of God from going out, and he needed the Redeemer to, to be killed. And so that's what we see going on in the whole Old Testament. That's why in the book of Revelation... Jesus has to come back, and he has to take everything that was a consequence of the fall of man, he has to undo. He somehow has to deal with mankind's sin, and he did that on the cross. He had to pay for our sin so that we could be released from that spiritual death and be brought into spiritual life. He then has to restore this earth, which is under the corruption, Romans chapter 8. And he's got to restore the animal kingdom back to its peaceful state. I mean, so he's basically doing all of this. And it's going to all take place in the book of Revelation in the future. Right now, we're, we're just preparing before the battle. The big battle is coming. And remember what I said about the overview of Revelation. Here's how I look at it. Keeping this whole battle theme in, in mind. Chapter 1 of Revelation, we're introduced to the commander, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. In chapters 2 and 3, there's like rally letters to the churches. 
Because we're his ambassadors. Our home is in heaven. Our citizenship is there. But we're ambassadors behind enemy lines. And so we're residing here as strangers and pilgrims. And he's going to encourage us with seven letters. And then, right before the battle rages, he pulls the ambassadors home. He takes them home. And so we're going to be raptured before that, end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4. And then, as in all ancient battles, music would be prepared. So there's going to be music prepared in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Battle plans are, are drawn up. There's a scroll with seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls. So the battle plans are drawn up. And then chapters 6 through 19, we watch the battle unfold as it's raging on this planet. Chapter 20, the commander physically comes back to earth and he conquers the enemy and sets up his kingdom. Chapters 21 and 22, it's eternal life with our king. What a, what a book of what's going to happen. So right now, we're at the towards the end of the church age. We don't know when, but it's coming. And we're just, we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to be witnessing. We need to be living righteously, living for Christ. And that's the goal. So take your Bibles, Genesis chapter 4. The promise of a, the seed of a woman has come. And the devil's watching. Chapter 4 says this. Okay, I have just a few points. We're going to cover about 2,000 years in tonight's text, the various texts, all the way to Abraham, Genesis 12. Here we go, chapter 4. Now, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. I have acquired a man. I think, and I could, I could be wrong, but I'm thinking Adam and Eve have their baby boy, and she's holding Cain, and she names him acquired. God gave me a man, not a baby boy, a man. I think Eve is thinking, this is the Redeemer, this is the seed that was promised. And he's going to grow up and be a mighty man, and he's going to kill that serpent in the garden. He's going to find that serpent someplace. He's going to kill the, the, the serpent, and it will, it will just then everything's back to normal like it used to be in the good old days. All right, little does she know. She also has another child, Abel, and the two boys grow up. But Cain is bent toward evil. He has a bent in rebellion. He has a bent because of his sin nature that is opposed to God. And, and, and Adam, or Abel, then it seems has a soft heart. Because here's what the scriptures say. Verse 2, she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Nothing wrong with either occupation, by the way. Nothing greater about being a keeper of sheep than being a a, a farmer tilling the ground. Verse 3, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit to the ground of the Lord. It could be this. Satan's getting into Cain's thoughts, just like Satan did with Eve. Remember how 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I fear lest the serpent will, te- will tempt you and cause you to think uh, wrong about the gospel, just like he did regarding Eve. The devil's got this trick, and I think he might have been saying to Cain, Cain, God is way too demanding. He wants a blood sacrifice. He wants the death of an animal for you to meet with him. Boy, he is so strict. He is so harsh. What's wrong with your vegetables, Cain? You do a great job, and they're beautiful. You just bring those to God, and if he doesn't like it, that's his problem. You see, Satan is already trying to destroy the human race, to to destroy any possibility that the Redeemer would come. So sure enough, Cain offers fruit of the ground to the Lord. Verse 4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, because God had already instituted Every sin requires a death. If you sin, in order to approach God, there has to be a death substitute. You have to bring a substitute. And an animal substitute was only temporary, but it was sufficient just to show my sin requires the death of, uh, death of an animal. So God respected Abel's, but did not respect, verse 5, did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was angry. 
So you can already tell. His heart has been turned to the wicked one, to Satan. And now, verse 8, Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Can you imagine that day? Mom and dad, Adam and Eve are saying, Hey, Cain, where's your brother? He's late for supper. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Am I supposed to keep track of my, young, my brother? I, I, I don't know where he is. And they're going out, and they find some fresh dirt in the field, and then they realize this is what our sin has done. Our sin against God, simply eating a forbidden fruit, simply transgressing in one little area, the command of God has brought upon violence and murder in our house, and they have to pull out the body of Abel from the ground. Can you imagine looking at his life? They've never seen a human body dead before. I think Satan is, saying, is getting into Cain's heart saying, kill, kill Abel, because out of Abel, if Abel's not the Messiah, the Messiah's going to come out of Abel. Kill him right now, and let's get this over with. So then the, the, the Redeemer can never come. Verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The word keeper? Shepherd. Am, am, I, am I my brother's shepherd? Am I supposed to care for him and watch over him? What are you asking of me? Boy, Satan's desire is just to keep the Messiah from coming, and he can have Cain kill Abel. What does God do? God raises up another man, another boy. His name is Seth. And at this point, I think Satan is now thinking, wow, every time I try to kill somebody who is either the Messiah or or going to be the Messiah, God's just simply going to raise up another man. So I need to infiltrate the whole line with apostasy. So in chapter 4, we get Cain, who is just a godless man. By the way, 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, say that Cain was of the wicked one in committing this first murder. So Satan is a murderer from the beginning, and all he wanted is violence and death. He'll do anything to keep the Messiah from coming. And we know Cain's heart was captured by the devil. Well, now Cain's producing a godless society. And they brag in chapter 4. They brag about all the things they do. Some of his relatives made tents and held livestock. Some made uh, flutes and other uh, entertainment. So their whole idea was, let's have a society without God. We can have tents and livestock and entertainment. We don't need God. We don't want God. All right? That's, and boy, if Satan could have that whole line thinking that way, nobody would ever leave his kingdom and be transferred into the kingdom of of the Lord because they are so godless. Well, God raises up Seth, chapter 5. We have the, the genealogy from Adam through Seth all the way down to Noah. And I've shared this before, but I think it's interesting. And we're going to look at only three of the men or four of the men in this, in this genealogy. But if you take each Hebrew name for what it means, because the word Adam means man, Seth means appointed one. So now, right away, as soon as he's named Seth, can you imagine what Satan's thinking? We've got to destroy this child. We've got to destroy this child and all of his ancestors. So it's Adam, Seth, and then it goes right down. If you take their name from Hebrew and put it into English, you get this. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Somebody who's sickly, very sickly to death, mortal. Down in verse 12, Canaan means sorrow. Verse 15, Mahalalel. El means God. Mahala means the blessed God. So Mahalalel means the blessed God. And then you have Yored, verse 18. Yored, that's where we get the word Jordan. The reason we call it the Jordan River is it starts high and it descends all the way down to the Dead Sea. A constant descent all the way to the Dead Sea. So Jordan means to descend, Yarden. So Yored means shall come down. So you've got shall come down. Verse 21, Enoch means teaching, one who teaches. 
Verse 25, Methuselah, met means death. Methuselah means his, de- his death shall bring. Verse 28, Lamech, like lamentations, gets the idea of despairing, uh, grief beyond measure. And then Noah, Noah means comfort, means to be comforted. So you say all those names, you get man is appointed mortal sorrow. We've sinned unto death. The blessed God shall come down teaching. That's the Messiah, the Redeemer. His death shall bring, his death on the cross, is going to bring those who are despairing comfort. So here you have the whole gospel in chapter 5 laid out through Seth's genealogy. But we've got Seth. Let's take a look at the seventh one from Adam. Verse 21, Enoch. I love Enoch, not just because he was raptured, but there's something very special about Enoch. Take your Bibles and remember, he's only the seventh generation from Adam. Take your Bibles, go with me to the book of Jude, verses 14 and 15. Go to the second to the last book of the New Testament, Jude, verse 14 and 15. I can tell you what Enoch was preaching back in the days when he was walking here on this earth, prior to the flood. Now remember, Satan's kingdom is one that only offers grief, frustration, evil, and ultimately death. And ungodliness just pours out of his kingdom. And the seed of the woman is coming. They just don't know when. Verse 14. Now Enoch, Jude 14, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. What does Enoch already know? He's only seven generations from Adam. He knows the Lord is coming. He knows God has to come. The seed of the woman has to be deity. The Lord is going to come. And here's what else he knows. He's not coming alone, but with 10,000s of his saints. But why is he coming? Verse 15, he's coming to execute judgment on all. That's the book of Revelation. The Lord coming with 10,000s of his saints. He's going to execute judgment on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's a message. That is a message for our day. We need to warn the world that the Lord is coming. He's going to come with 10,000 of his saints, and he's going to execute judgment on this whole planet. And if they are not in Christ, if they have not trusted him, and they remain in the kingdom of Satan, they will be brought to the lake of fire ultimately. That is, that is if my neighbor's house was burning down, I would not just walk by and say, well, I certainly hope they get out if they get the chance. My neighbor's house is burning I want to run over there, and I want to run in and grab them and pull them out. And and we have people that are driving by our church. They're working by us. They're at the grocery stores by us. And they are blinded, and they're in Satan's kingdom. And unless we explain the good news that there is a way out, and and then as God takes the the blindness off and they trust him, there is no other hope for them. We realize that, right? God is going to come back. So can you imagine Enoch already knew this? The Lord is coming with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly of all their ungodly deeds. Wow, what a message. So Enoch has a baby. His name is Methuselah. And who, what do we know about Methuselah? Oldest man in the Bible, 969 years old. Why was he so old? I think because he is a picture of God's grace. I think he should have died at 949, I'm sorry, 849 years old. Because at eight, when Methuselah was 849, God told Noah, 120 years and my spirit will not strive with man anymore. God says, I'm going to give only 120 more years for people on earth. So maybe Methuselah should have died there, but, now, but his death is going to bring the flood. So if you take the genealogy of chapter 5 and you do all the numbers, 
When Methuselah is 369, Noah is, um, is born, and 600 years later, the flood comes, 969. So the very year, possibly the very day Methuselah dies, the ark is closed, and the floodwaters pl- pl- just plummet this earth into a, into a great judgment. No wonder why it says when Methuselah, look at chapter 5 again, Verse 22, after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God after he begot Methuselah. He must have known when my, when my child dies, God is going to bring judgment on this earth somehow. With 10,000 of his saints, he's going to execute judgment. I need to be ready. And he just began to walk godly. And then the Lord raptures him, takes him home without a death. So Methuselah pictures grace. Enoch pictures the church being raptured before the worldwide judgment, which is called the tribulation. And then Noah in the ark, he pictures Israel in the tribulation. The believers that are of Israel are, are safe in the midst of the tribulation period of worldwide judgment. So that's Enoch. But look at Lamech, verse 28. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son. He, named his, he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Incredible. Lamech must have thought, this baby boy is the seed of the woman. He's going to give us comfort from the cursed earth. He is going to be able to rescue us from this terrible curse that has come upon us from the sin of our our relative Adam. So maybe Lamech was thinking, this is the Messiah. This is the Redeemer. I don't know, but that's an incredible statement. And then Noah comes. Now, Satan realizes he's got to stop this godly line. He's got to stop the Messiah from coming. So it's not working just to bring apostasy and godless living because God can simply have a redeemer come in the midst of all that. What he wants to do is infiltrate the whole human race. Take your Bibles. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, and then we'll be back in Jude in just a moment. 2 Peter 2. In Genesis 6, it says that the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they produced the Nephilim, these great men of renown, these giants in the land. Now, I don't believe that the sons of God were Cain's line, godless, and the daughters of men were Seth's, the ladies in Seth's line, and the two of them got together and produced a godless breed because they wouldn't, they wouldn't produce giants, these men of renown, these great giants. There had to be something strange that was happening. I think the sons of God are fallen angels, and I think the daughters of men are just the human daughters of the line. Uh, of Seth, but also of, of the human race. And the fallen angels came down and cohabited with the women and produced children. And the children, almost demonic, they were Nephilim. They were giants. Satan was trying to corrupt the human genealogy so the Messiah could never be born. Because if he can t- contaminate everybody on the, on the planet, how could the Messiah be born? How could the Redeemer, the seed of the woman, be born to crush his head? Here's what 2 Peter says in verse, uh, 2 Peter, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, I think a very particular sin, he didn't spare them, but cast them down to hell, that's Tartarus, this darkness of chains, uh, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world but saved Noah. So they're an example of God bringing judgment on a group of angels who sinned. Go now to Jude, just a couple pages over. Please go to Jude and take a look at verse 6.
and the angels who did not keep their proper domain. So a group of angels, out of the one-third of evil angels, there were a group of them that didn't keep their proper domain, their proper boundaries, but left their own abode. Maybe they left the heavenly realm where they live. It says, He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these... So whatever Sodom and Gomorrah's sin, ultimate sin was, it was parallel to what these angels' sins were. Listen to what it says. Having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. So the, in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, men were going after men, women after women. But the angels that fell, that were cha- brought to deep darkness and chains, they, they left their abode and went after strange fra- flesh. Human women And they came down to contaminate the whole line so the Redeemer could not be born. And God says these are set as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Back to Genesis, please. Genesis chapter 7. So what does God do? God raises up Noah, commands Noah, you've got 120 years to build an ark. All who believe will enter the ark the animal kingdom, some of representatives of the animal kingdom will enter, and I will drown the earth, the earth with a worldwide flood. So in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, Noah being divinely warned of things yet not seen. He had never seen a worldwide flood. He had never seen rain because there was a mist that came from the ground. So Noah has to preach for 120 years while he's building the ark and tell people there is going to be a worldwide flood Water is going to break forth out of the heavens, and this entire planet will be, will be drowned with water. And what is everybody saying about Noah? You are a fool. It, we don't understand. Rain, you're making this up. We've never experienced rain. We've never felt it. We don't, and Noah's like, take it by faith. God is going to come and bring judgment on this earth. Why is God going to bring a worldwide flood? So that he can cleanse the whole human race from this demonic angel, uh, this demonic angel infiltration. And so Noah preaches for 120 years. And every hammer blow and every piece of wood that he puts onto the ark is a statement saying, I believe in God. I believe in God. It was also a divine, it was also a warning to the whole world. You must believe or you will perish. Now, how many people believed when the flood came? Eight. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. That's it. And possibly, I've heard some numbers like, the population of the earth in the days of Noah, because it's 1,600 years after creation, so you have 1,600 years of a lot of multiplying, there could have been millions, if not billions, of people on the earth. And Noah, after preaching for 120 years, has eight that would believe. As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. I do think that the believers will be less and less on the earth. God's always going to have his remnant. Boy, talk about a remnant, eight people. And when that door swung shut, there was one door picturing Jesus as the one door into heaven and the ark being a place of safety in the midst of a, of a judgment. So if we're in Christ, all that wrath of God has been poured on Christ on the cross. But if we're in Christ, we're safe from the wrath of God. When, that, when the floodwaters broke open and that ark began to lift off the earth, How many people believed the message? Everybody. But it was way too late. They could not enter the ark, and they perished. I think the world in the days of Noah 
laughed at the promises of God, laughed at the word of God and said, it can't be. And I wouldn't give a nickel for that. But as soon as that water got up to their necks, or maybe they just died in the deluge because it came so quick, who knows? I bet they would have said, one promise of God is worth 10,000 worlds. You know, we've got the word of God and all of its promises, and sometimes we just don't think it's a big deal. But in the future, there's coming a day when there is going to be such catastrophe on this earth that people will say, this one promise is worth 10,000 of these earths. Listen, we ha- we, we've, our heart has to break for the men and women around us that are blinded. They don't know the truth. We, I talk to them all week. I, they don't know the truth. They don't love the truth. And they will perish. It's our responsibility to get out the message. Now remember, if we give the message out and somebody is born again, they are out of Satan's kingdom and they're brought, Colossians 1.13, into the kingdom of the son of his love. And Satan doesn't want that. So every time you give the gospel, every single time, you are waging spiritual warfare. You are infuriating Satan and his one-third of angels that are floating around and doing their deeds. You are absolutely making them furious. It is a, that's why we don't do it. That's why we do not witness. It's not that we're just too afraid or we don't have time or whatever. It is really, that's battle. That's warfare. And Satan wants us so complacent. He wants us sitting back saying, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. Listen, you think prayer is effective? You think prayer really matters? I think the church doesn't care about prayer anymore. I do. I, I think the modern church thinks, who needs prayer? That's kind of a waste of time. It's hard to concentrate. Who wants to sit around for an hour of prayer? We don't have that kind of time. No problem watching a two-hour movie or a um, sitcom or whatever, you know. Easy because it's mindless and it doesn't require anything. Prayer is hard work. Just to concentrate in prayer and to talk to the Lord in prayer. It, it's just, it, it should flow out of us. But, you know, why is it that the church doesn't want to pray anymore? It's one of Satan's methods. If we pray, then God would hear our earnestness and he would begin to do things and then Satan would be weakened. He doesn't want that. A church that begins to pray, it scares Satan to to the ends of the earth. He would do all he can to to destroy that. Do you agree with me? He doesn't want us us witnessing. He doesn't want us to have a good testimony. Because if we have a good testimony, people might see something different in us and then realize they're followers of Yeshua. They're followers of Jesus. They are Christians. They are imitators of Christ. Satan doesn't want that. He wants us to look like the world and blend in with the world so nobody will ever know that we really love Jesus. He is so deceptive. And in the days of Noah, people that, that perished, boy, they knew. They knew we were wrong. People are dying I think 95 a minute or something like that, worldwide, and most going to hell, they know, I was wrong. I was wrong about Jesus. Well, do you know after the days of the flood, the ark rested on the seventh month and the 17th day of that month? Interesting, isn't it? So let me just throw this out to you. Just because God is so completely in control. I love this. He is in absolute control. If you take Exodus chapter 12, when God switched the years, because the years, of course, there's 12 months in a year, but the Jewish people, because of the lunar calendar, goes 13 months, some years, like Adar 1 and Adar 2. But God said, I'm going to take the seventh month and make it the first month. So the month became Nisan. 
The day that the ark rested on Mount Ararat was Nisan 17. Does that mean anything to you? It should. Nisan 17 is the day years later that God commanded Moses to be the, fir- the feast of first fruits. It had to be on Nisan on the 17th day of that month, always. And on that day, it was when you would take the first fruits of the harvest and you would bring them to the temple or the tabernacle and you would wave them before the Lord and you would be saying, Lord, here's the beginning of the harvest. The rest is not done yet. The rest is still maturing, so we can't harvest yet, but it's almost there. And this is the ripe stuff and there's more to come. And they would hold this up and say, thank you, Lord, thank you, because we have a little of the harvest, but you will give us the rest soon. It was just such a beautiful thing, this Feast of first fruits. But it was also the day that Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the dead, and um, he is the first of a whole bunch that will be raised from the dead. We are the rest of the harvest. We're coming. He came first. He is the first fruits, and now us, 1 Corinthians 15, right? On the, on the seventh month, Nisan... On the 17th day, the ark, which is a picture of Jesus, rested. The word rest in the Hebrew on that verse, it says the ark rested on the, on the mountains of Ararat. Rest means, to, it means shev. It means sit. You never really would say a ship sits down, but that word is sit. So the ark sat. On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark sat on the mountains. Mount is a highly elevated place. Heaven is a highly elevated place. Ararat. Do you want to know what Ararat means in the Hebrew? It means the reversal of the curse. The reversal of the sin. Ararat means to reverse the curse. So Jesus rose up. He sat down in a highly exalted place. He has, res- he has reversed the curse of, the sin, of sin. Isn't that phenomenal? It's, there was no accident the ark hit the mountain on that particular day. No accident at all. Can I just do one more, and then I'll leave Tower of Babel for next week? One more is Nimrod. In Genesis chapter 10, God raised a, or Satan raised up a man named Nimrod. Nimrod was a mighty hunter. And it says in the Bible that like, there was a quote going around. You know how we like to say, um, like, Muhammad Ali, wasn't he what, the greatest? I don't know. He was the greatest man. I mean, he just, you know, considered himself to be the greatest. He stung like a VR. I don't even know. But there was a phrase about him that everybody knows. I don't know. You guys would, I don't know. Yeah, float like a butterfly. I mean, he made all these brags about how great he is. That's what Nimrod was doing. And he said, I'm a mighty hunter before the Lord. It almost sounds like he was a good shot with a buck, you know, how many hundreds of yards away or whatever. Um, It's not that he was a great deer hunter or a duck hunter. He was a hunter. He was a fighter before the Lord. The word before in the Hebrew, panim, it means face. I think Nimrod was one of the first men, godless men, that went to the Lord face to face to kill him, to fight him. He went before the Lord as a mighty fighter, face to face, I think, to dethrone the Lord. He established a kingdom. What was the name of the beginning of his kingdom? Babel. That's, and so when we get to Revelation and we see Babylon, the mystery of Babylon, Revelation 17, it goes all the way back to when Nimrod fought against the Lord and established a kingdom. And since then, Babylon has, it was Satan's base. I mean, he moved around different times. We'll see that in the book of Revelation. But Babylon was his city, and it's going to rise in the end, and the Antichrist will rule out of Babylon and fight against God's city, Jerusalem. 
What a contest. Who wins? God. God wins. He is the sovereign one. He is the eternal king. But until then, Satan's going to have his methods, and he's going to do all he can to destroy us. He will. He, he, is, he is working overtime. Do you think Satan knows the days of his, uh, of his uh, end is uh, drawing near? Absolutely. Revelation 12, after Michael war, they war in heaven in the future, and Michael kicks him out of heaven entirely, Satan is enraged and goes to war against the offspring of God because he is angry. He knows his time is short. And I think every day that goes on, Satan knows, I don't have much time. I need to keep these people blinded. I need to keep this testimony shallow. I need to keep their time in the word of God as slim as possible. I don't care if they read it as long as they don't obey it. And then don't let them pray. Get them distracted. Don't let them witness. Keep them self-centered. I mean, he's, he's all over the place. He's doing everything he, do, he can to keep truth from being shouted out from the rooftop. And what are we going to do about it? Shout it out from the rooftop, aren't we? We're going to make it clear and make it known who Jesus Christ is. That's our mission. So don't forget, you know, sure, we get battles and trials day by day and things are overwhelming and we got bills to pay and things to do. Don't forget, though, that we're looking at something way bigger than just my routine. Everything we're doing is either for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the devil. We're either missionaries or a mission field. So let's go out and serve the Lord, all right? Let's do it. Let's serve the Lord. Father, thank you for this time and your word and just looking at these um, events of how Satan has worked in the past, we want to be reminded of what he's doing in the church age. And the church has been lulled to complacency. Truly, we are living in a Laodicean age where we think we're rich, but we are spiritually impoverished. Oh, I pray for strong and healthy and godly churches that are trusting your word. They're deep in prayer. They're effective in their evangelism, and they're building one another up for the work of ministry. Father, let's just continue to love you and serve you until the day you call this church home in the rapture. May we be found faithful and consistent, loving one another. May may we have so many opportunities this week to hand out a gospel tract or to have a conversation with somebody about Jesus and what he has done for us. And even if we can just share our testimony about our salvation, wow, how impacting. We could impact 100 people this week that maybe have not thought about Jesus or heard about him for a long time. So give us those wide open doors and allow us to get in the, in the midst of the battle. But Father, we want to be fully clothed with your armor. We want to have the shield of faith. We want to have, um, we don't want any part of our heart or life exposed. So Father, as we trust you, do this for us. Do the work. You've given us the energy and the will. We just need to obey. So keep us faithful and pure. We just love you, Father, so much. We know Christ wins in the end. We just long for that day when it begins. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Amen. All right.